This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are bringing in Reed Dent to launch a mini-series on parables, starting with a discussion about what a parable is and why anyone would want to teach in that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have uh, we have like a whole new little chapter here of... Like, we have a retreat we talked about a few weeks ago in one of our episodes that we have coming up where we're going to do a bunch of planning for the future. So what do we do in between now and then? We had this, I had this idea where I wanted to get these series. Uh, somebody called them on the team anthologies. I really like that. I like that word. I do too. So our other Bema teachers, I, I don't know if I am going to do one or not, but Reed and Josh and L are all going to do an anthology. And so Reed's going to do one on the parable. So at this point, I'm just going to, I'm just along for the ride. So. There's no mini in your series, Marty. You do year-long <laughs> dissection of the Gospel of John, you know, things like the that. The series is Bema. That's what it's called. Well, I'm going to be busy on a on a book tour and all kinds of stuff. So it's a great time to let other people share. And I'm going to, I'll be present on a lot of these episodes, but to not carry the weight. Speaking of which, I'm just going to slide into the co-pilot seat along with Brent Billings and turn it over to Reed and... Yeah. We'll all have fun. So, Reed, it's all yours. Yeah, hey, hey. Um, I am looking forward to this. Uh, when when the idea about the anthologies was initially pitched, I knew immediately that I wanted to talk about parables. We did a series on it, oh, at CCF like four or five years ago, and it was one of my favorite teaching series that we've done. Uh, and so I am just very in love with the parables. There are other parts of scripture or genres, styles that I feel like more a fish out of water with, but the parables I feel kind of at home with. Um, I don't know if it's because, you know, I've got a literary background or what it is, but yeah, I was excited to dive in. So I wanted to start um, with a question, and it's a question about questions. And this is for uh, any of the listeners to think about, uh, also Marty Brent, if either of you has a response to this, uh, you're welcome to to answer. And the question is just this. Has anyone ever asked you a really big question? Like a kind of question where uh, they ask it and there is not an immediate answer that can flow out of your mouth. You have to think about it. You stop, you pause, you realize that it's something of significance uh, I mean, you, Marty, are in, uh, I'm, I'm sure, like in, and Brent, you too. I mean, just nature of what we do here um, and Marty and your other life as campus minister, like this kind of stuff comes up, right? Can you guys think of, does anything just come to mind of here's a time when somebody asked me what felt like a really important question? Yeah, I think of that. I, and when I think of like the word important, mm -hmm. um, I think that word throws me. And when you originally asked the question, I think you used the word big, like a really big question. Mm -hmm. And what comes to my mind are these questions where you're like, you just immediately start backpedaling, like zooming out. Like you're going to have to zoom the camera out because mm. the question is so big that you got to zoom out and try to figure out, well, we're never going to deal with the question itself. The question is just far, there's far too much there, whether it's complexity or nuance or layers or whatever. And, and you're going to have to like zoom out and, and rephrase the question. You're going to have to make it about something like principles. Because like I, I'll never be able to answer that question for you, but maybe we can talk about some of the principles that are going to, you know, lead your decision making, or principles that speak about how we frame the way we view the world, or 
Mm-hmm. Like that's where my brain when I when I thought about big questions, there's like big and then there's important, both of which are like they're they're not just a question. They're mo- they're so much more than a question. Absolutely. Yeah. And what that makes me think is so when we go out big and we go to principles, we're probably going abstract. Uh we're abstractifying uh an answer rather than sure. concretizing it. Um, I mean, the questions that I was thinking of that I have been asked, some of them are very personal um, and immediate, like uh, people uh, who have asked me, you know, how do I forgive somebody who has repeatedly hurt me or like, do I have to or what's that supposed to look like? Um, questions. So leading a, a ministry questions about like, you know, should we let people who believe X should we let them lead in our church? Um, or even questions like uh, kind of that are immediately big and theological, like what is grace? Like what's the definition of grace or what is the definition of judgment or um, what is the definition of wrath or things like that? Um, I also think about uh, maybe if we're not being asked a question, but if we've just been tasked with communicating something that has like an air of importance or significance about it. Um, so preachers who are listening, like really anytime you give a sermon, there is an expectation that you are communicating something of significance because you're talking about God. Um, I think about right now, like the Christmas sermon, uh, this time of year sermons that fall on big, important events or holidays, uh, Marty, maybe you relate to this one. So if you're leading an organization and you're having to communicate to your people about the vision and the goals for that organization, um, <clears throat> or even trying to think about the way that you feel about someone, whether that be a positive or a negative. Um, and the question that comes to mind when we are trying to answer big questions or communicate important things is how uh, would you how would you say what you wanted to say? And Marty, you answered this a little bit already, like you're zooming out, you're going to principles. Um, how would you say, how, how do you think we value answering these kinds of questions in our culture, whether that be in church culture, in Western American culture? Um, I'm at a university, so in university culture, uh, what, what do you think are some of the ways we, we value or we're expected to talk about things like this? Well, I know in the church, we have built a world and just continued to insist that we should have an answer for every question, a reason for the hope that we have. Mm -hmm. And we have definitely packaged that in such a way where everything has to like, we feel like we are betraying Jesus or faith. If we don't, if we can't give a clear defined answer, like vague ambiguity Mm -hmm. is almost sinful. Um, and that's, I mean, that's an overstatement, but I feel like in the church world at large, we definitely don't, we don't want to zoom out. Like, I think you had a, you had a example, Reed, you said a moment ago about what is justification? I get, and I get these questions on Facebook or Twitter, like all the time. And the first line is always, well, that's a lot for me to unpack on Twitter, or <laughs> that's a lot for me to unpack on Facebook messenger. Cause that's a big question. But we feel like we're supposed to have a very clear answer to this is the definition of grace. Mm. And not that there's not definitions of grace, Mm. but I feel like maybe the university culture you asked, especially today's university culture, which we critique so often from an evangelical point of view, maybe they do a better job at that. Maybe they overcorrect, perhaps, but 
they probably do a better job of, well, let's muddy the waters here and pull it apart and analyze it and put it in a lab and figure it all out. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's that's a that is a great and I think accurate response. I really like that question of should we let people who believe whatever lead in our church? Um, hmm. And I, I've kind of had that rolling around in the back of my mind for a long time. And I think Reed and I will someday do an episode uh, related to that a little bit more directly. But yeah, I really like that question. Yeah. Marty, I think you're right. I think uh, what we value is uh, detail, accuracy, like a clear line of thinking where I can go easily from this point to this point to this point. The rationale is obvious. Um, like we, we very much value clarity. We very much value straightforwardness. And so I, I think when it comes to important things, crucial things, it's like, you got to be clear, you got to be accurate. Um, it's got to be thorough and your information's got to be good. Um, and, and then, uh, you, this is segueing into our series on the parables. Uh, you don't have to go very far into Jesus teaching to realize that, Jesus apparently does not have these same. <laughs> he doesn't seem to care about any of that list. Right. <laughs> not at all. And it's not, uh, I want to be clear, and we'll maybe return to this a little bit later. I'm not saying that uh, detailed information and accurate facts and data points are are bad, are always bad. Not at all. Um, but Jesus, you're right. Yeah, he doesn't seem to care about, care about any of that. Um, so you, you get into, uh, Matthew 13, which is kind of in this passage here is in the middle of, uh, just this whole slew of parables that are coming in Matthew. Um, Brent, do you want to read that? Yeah. The, uh, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. <laughs> okay, so there's there's a lot. We could do a whole episode just unpacking this passage, but of particular interest to me is that last part, uh, because what we <laughs> read that last line one more time, Brent. Though seeing, they do not see, and hearing... And though here and uh -huh. but they do not hear nor understand. <laughs> yeah. So, so you want to know why I speak in parables? It, it feels a little bit like to me because Jesus is saying, uh, cause they're not going to get it or, or so they won't get it. Like it needs to be intentionally yes. difficult to understand. Yep. Uh, which, which becomes more problematic, uh, later on, uh, because further in chapter 13, uh, we hear Matthew, he inserts, uh, this little statement, this summary statement, about uh, Jesus speaking in parables, and specifically, he makes he, he mentions uh, something as to like what these parables are about. Brent, can you read that? Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So what we're talking about, what Jesus is talking about, are things that have been hidden since the foundation or the creation of the world. <laughs> what, what kind of feeling do you get when you just hear, or what expectation do you have 
when you hear something that has been hidden since the foundation of the world? Like, what kind of air does that have to you guys? It feels like, <clears throat> I mean, not not in the context of Jesus, but the phrase itself makes me think. I was just thinking about this last night. I was watching somebody engage in some trolling social media thread, and they were like, well, let me tell you what, you know, oh, it was about, it's actually about college football. Well, let me tell you about how the quarterback draft works. And I'm sure this guy is an absolute professional in the quarterback draft, the NFL quarter, but it was, it just came off as such a, like, well, obviously, you know, something that all the rest of us don't know. Like when I, when I saw that phrase Mm -hmm. outside the context of Jesus, it's like, oh, okay. And I just kind of like roll my eyes, like, here, you know, here comes the here comes the secret stuff. Right. Like I'm thinking national treasure. There are like things that have been hidden that are world shaking and sure. I'm going to tell them to you. Yep. And we're all like, OK, I got to know what this is. And if we're not, I mean, talk about trying to import, uh, communicate important or crucial things. I am communicating to you. These world-shaking things that have been hidden since the foundation of the world, here they come, and we're all like, okay, make it clear. Make your point directly. We all need to – it's really important. We can all follow this, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, and it's interesting that Jesus is intentionally obscuring things because the context of Psalm 78 is like the opposite of that. Whoa, whoa, Brent, Psalm 78. What? Are you skipping ahead? No, that's what he's quoting. Wow, look at you. You've got the text in you. I was going to, I was, I was going to ask, like, I mean, it's not in me. I, I just looked it up. But... Gosh, dang it. Cause I was going to say, do you guys know where this is from? Um, which is weird by the way that it's called a prophet, but what was spoken Reed, by the prophet. I'm always looking at the footnotes. By I know the way. you are. you got that, you got that NET Bible all the time. Um, but what was spoken by the prophet, this is actually from a Psalm. It is Psalm 78. Matthew is uh, taking us back. He's hyperlinking. He's connecting us to Psalm 78. Uh, do you guys do you guys know what Psalm 78 is? What it's about? I mean, I didn't before just now. Or I couldn't have told you anyway. Yeah. Yeah. If my memory serves me correctly, is that where they're basically telling the story of how they came out in the story of Passover and the Exodus? Yes. It is like the entire story of Israel. Um, involving all of the different elements. Uh, it's got it's got the Exodus. It's got the the water from the rock. It's got uh, the stories of idolatry and stories of rebellion. Um, it's got stuff about God's anger at all of that. It's got stories about their exile. It's got uh, talk about being shepherded under the King David. Uh, the whole arc of like salvation, uh, rebellion, restoration. Uh, is what Psalm 7, it's a really long psalm, um, and it just tells the whole entire story, and it begins with that line, um, I will speak to you in parables, uh, what has been hidden, it's not exactly since the foundation of the world, but pretty close. Um, and so I hear, Ma- why is Matthew putting this line here right now? And to me, the significance is, uh, he, he's basically saying these parables are concerning things uh, that are as significant and as massive and as all-encompassing as the entire salvation story of Israel. Uh, this is what I'm going to open up to you, but I'm going to open it up in parables. And if you read the parables, um, they're not directly about you know the exile, and it's not about the wandering, and it's not about the exodus and and all of that. Um, but they we do find these 
big things, these big um, sort of topics, issues that do concern what I would say is the stuff of salvation. We find things, uh, lots of parables about rebellion and judgment or even anger in response to that. We find lots of parables about grace and mercy and the way that God cares. Uh, We find lots of parables about the nature of the kingdom itself. Um, and, And so you have all of these things. This is like the stuff of what it is to be human of who God is, and yet Jesus is like, I'm not giving you the detailed information. I'm not giving you a bunch of data points. I'm going to tell it to you in parables and intentionally to obscure it uh, somehow. Um, and, and this is kind of why I want to do this series is because the idea of um, like kind of Jesus's, Jesus, Jesus, essential theology being wrapped up in stories is just always been so fascinating to me. Uh, and the way that they operate on the hearer, uh, the, what they can bring out of you, uh, when you decide to dig into them is something that I am continually blown away by, uh, that Jesus had all of these parables. I I mean, I, I think that Jesus probably crafted these parables, um, in his, in his off time, uh, where we're, we're not like, I, I think he is working on them and to work on all of these parables and just like the chosen showed in that controversial scene when he was working on the sermon on the Mount. Oh, really? I haven't seen it. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know no, why that's controversial. He, I think Jesus is, yeah. I think Jesus is working on work on, I think he's workshopping parables. I think he's crafting them and then, but to have all of these and then at the, at the moment, uh, where it is most appropriate to tell them he has them ready and that he is willing to say them and just let that stand as its own thing has always blown me away and fascinated me. I love them so much. So that's why we're doing the series. As you say this, Reed, I feel like there's a relationship between parables and wisdom. Mm. And uh, and maybe that's obvious. I just need to say that out loud. But there is like you said earlier, I think it's our Western sensibilities, my own, because obviously I said I do it that wants to, I think you use the word abstractify, like we move it into the abstract to consider it philosophically, because that's who we are. We're Westerners. That's what we do. That's how we acknowledge and relate to truth. We put it in the abstract to consider its abstract bigness. And yet the Eastern method is to move it further into the concrete. So you have truth and you have a big question, you have a big idea. But the idea is too big to just stay where it's at. So you got to go one of two directions. You either have to pull it into the abstracts, you can engage it, or you're going to pull it into the concrete so that you can engage it. And I feel like there's something about wisdom that you can't tap into in the abstract. Like at some point, wisdom will never be able to be like true wisdom. The wisdom of wisdom is going to have to somehow be experienced. And I feel like that's what the parable the parable takes the big idea and pulls it into a concrete form that invites us into a space, a, a concrete space where I could actually tap into the wisdom because I'm not going to be able to do it through explanation and systematic theology and big abstract ideas. That reminds me of our conversation uh, way back when uh, about the truth and the fact of things. And I think our tendency is to like factify as much as we can. And so mm, yep. we we think that when we uh, w- when we go abstract, when we go big, when we're stating like principles and propositions about God, 
uh, that we're just kind of stating these like facts that we are somehow getting it or comprehending it or telling the truth, uh, which it's not that, you know, those it's not that the facts aren't necessarily true, but it's more like uh, they they don't they don't actually have like you said, it needs to be experienced. They don't really have the power to to do much other than make us kind of scratch our head. Whereas Jesus' uh, tendency is to not factify. I like that word. I think I'm making it up, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm into it. I'm here for it. Um, not to factify, but to narrativize uh, the truth. Um, and the question is why, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But yeah, so a parable, um, the, the word literally means to uh, something thrown alongside of is what parable means which is is really kind of like what a metaphor is. Uh, so you're taking something unfamiliar, um, and it could be something about God, something about us, uh, something that, you know, we can't really get at directly, and you put it up alongside, or you put it, you put it even as something that is familiar. Um, and parables, I've said this before to other people, like parables, it's kind of like a metaphor, but you take a metaphor and you explode it out into a whole story with like an arc and characters. Um, and not every parable is like that, but a lot of the big ones are, and you get, uh, God, uh, being cast as all kinds of different characters, uh, through the parables that we'll see. I mean, you see God as a farmer, you see God as uh, a winemaker, you see God as a baker. Um, <laughs> one of the ones that makes me scratch my head is like God is like a cranky judge. Um, God as a king is maybe one that we're a little bit more um, comfortable with. Uh, and you see the way that we are painted in parables. Uh, we're itinerant laborers and we're party guests and we're runaway kids. And then you get even the kingdom itself being talked about uh, in these very concrete ways. It's yeast, it's mustard seeds, it's buried treasure. Um, and it's worth noting that, uh, and Eugene Peterson pointed this out in his book, Tell It Slant, there is nothing overtly religious about any of this. Jesus, uh, most hmm. of the time, is not using religious metaphors at all. It is right. it is cast in the language and the setting of what is daily, what is routine, what is earthy, you know? The blood, the soil, the sweat. Yeah. The the real life. But that's not normally the way that we do, we tend to do theology like here in the West, is it? Right. Um, Kenneth Bailey said that uh, Jesus was a metaphorical theologian. He created meaning uh, like a dramatist and a poet rather than like a philosopher. So the way that Jesus wants to do his uh, theology is with images and symbols um, and stories and not with like logic and, uh, ra the, like the rational rationale, the reasoning. Um, and I, it made me think like if Jesus, if we had a systematic theology that Jesus had written, you know, how like <laughs> William Lane Craig wrote a systematic theology and it's like five volumes, it's 25,000 pages or whatever it is. It's not really that. I don't know what it is, but you know, and it, it would like, if Jesus had written a systematic theology, it would be one volume and it would really be mostly just a collection of short stories. <laughs> right be a pamphlet right and, and like doesn't that it would be like a chat book um like a little poetry book you know like it, from some indie publisher um uh -huh. and it, like this has to have implications for us right and not that everybody suddenly has to become a master parable storyteller because it's actually really hard to like 
respond to big questions with stories that actually are meaningful and make sense. Like it's a very difficult thing to do, but maybe it should do something for like our economy of value and where we say like, this is good. This is like what we should be putting on a pedestal uh, and what is not. And we tend to value like the, the more direct clear line of thinking like that kind of, for, for whatever reason, we're like, those are the guys, they're really smart. They know the stuff. Um, because they wrote 25,000 words and five volumes on a systematic theology. Uh, but Jesus just doesn't really seem to work like that. Kenneth Bailey also said uh, that he said, parables do more than explain meaning. They create meaning. Um, and, and I think what he means is this. A parable is not like a theological conveyor belt where it's just kind of carrying the essential information down the line, and then you can pick it up and just kind of look at it at your convenience. So it's not like, you know, God is omnipotent. And you're like, oh, cool, I'll pick that up. And that's interesting. What is omni and what is potent and what does all that mean? And we tend to just get into like this whole uh, quest for like definitions and what things mean. Um, but parables are are more like a house and uh, they've got they got windows looking out on all sides and you are invited to move into the house and live there. So like with the, with the sower parable, right? Uh, you talked about this all through Israel, Marty, and I, I loved it. I love that you were quoting it all the time. Um, you are invited to move into that parable and you can look out the windows at different sides and you can look at different ideas or issues or topics from within that parable. Like you could use it as a way of thinking about evangelism, which people often do. You could look at it as a way of, uh, looking at, uh, discipleship. Um, or what is the nature of evil, or what is the church, or what is justice, or all of these different things, parables can give you a space and an angle for digging into all of them. The trick is that uh, you are left, a lot of the work then is left to you. It's not just like a take it or leave it, right? It's not just like a, here's the thing, do you agree or disagree? That's not the way that Jesus does theology. So, <laughs> you know, Jesus, um, at the end of the day, Maybe not the guy that, you know, you would pay to come to your church conference. To <laughs> Okay, so I was thinking about that last little section that, yeah. you, that you had. Yeah. Uh, uh, just to back up Bailey's quote there, Bailey's quote, let me see, it's in our notes. Parables do more than explain meaning, they create meaning. Mm -hmm. May, immediately made me think of a quote uh, that's from a rabbi, but the, it's being quoted in a book, um, uh, The Great Spiritual Migration by Brian McLaren. Mm. And, um, and that quote comes out and says... Uh, referencing a rabbi, rabbi, this rabbi says, Christians read the Bible looking for truth. Jews read the Bible looking for meaning. Mm. And that same idea, and I thought you referenced that parable that I tell on my Israel trip, a little peek behind the curtain, just a little bit, not too much, but like I tell this parable just morning after morning after morning, and every group responds differently to that experience. But many groups have responded and been like, what are you? Why are you doing that? What are you trying to like? What is the truth? What are you trying to? And my explanation is like, well, I'm not. I'm just. I'm just trying to open this thing up because I'm assuming that God's going to do about. You know, there's 54 of us on this trip. I'm assuming that God's going to do about 54 different things with that parable because you're all experiencing this content in different ways and at different times. But I really think this parable is a great vehicle through which to experience the things you're experiencing, and it gets back to that. 
a parable is able to do something that just a morning devotional thought that I could spew doesn't. Absolutely. Absolutely. It makes me think, um, this is all, this is all pretty risky. Uh, Jesus, like why, when you're talking about things as big as God or human nature or the kingdom of God, like, why do you do it this way? Why take the risk that somebody like people are going to misunderstand it? Um, they're just never. Oh goodness. Okay. I got to interrupt you. I got an email last night. It wasn't even an email. It was a YouTube comment where somebody was referring my, what my second episode on the podcast where they said, uh, I was I was talking about my book. I was like, hey, go pre-order my book. And they're like, sorry, hard pass for me. You said that God tells more half-truths than Satan. <laughs> to which, yeah, there was like this moment. I know exactly what you're speaking about because I like wanted to respond like, oh, no, you're completely misunderstanding my point. And, the, and it was like, oh, okay. Like, I hear you say this and I think about the, yeah, the commitment Jesus had to have to this method. Of like, yes, so many people are going to misunderstand what I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. So many people are going to abuse my intent. And Jesus never corrects them. Like he never (laughs) makes clear. He never lets his insecurity be like, and I know some of you guys are going to, (laughs) like I do that in the podcast all the time. Jesus just tells a parable and lets it go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, and even, even if all we walk away with is that we don't understand, that's actually not the worst realization that we could come to. Uh, I think it's in, I think it's in Eugene Peterson's book. He's talking about something that GK Chesterton said. And he said, you know, if you're, if you're a teacher, um, it is your responsibility like to illustrate something with like an example or a story. And if your students respond, we don't understand, then it's up to you to provide another example or illustration or story and if they say, we don't understand, then you give them one more. And if after that they say, we don't understand, your your response as the teacher is, that is correct. You do not understand. And so, <laughs> and, and that may be what part of what we need to know with our grappling with the parables uh, is that we don't understand. I always laugh. Mm. There's the part in, I don't remember which gospel it is. I think it might be Matthew when Jesus is like, do you understand what I've said to you? And the disciples are and the disciples go, yes. And I'm like, do you? Anyway. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, so maybe what we walk away with is, man, I don't know. And that's, that's not a bad place to start. Like that's a part of the, it's a part of the parable experience. Yeah. And you know, we like think- to actually sit back and think you're going to always hear a parable and always get it and always interact with it and always understand and always like, right. that's just silly and ridiculous. Right. So uh, before we answer the question of why speak this way, I just want to like question the assumption that straightforward speech is best um, because it occurs to me that unmisunderstandable communication is actually not risk-free um, so like if Ooh. I just like, so we think be direct. Okay. If I say God is omnipotent, like, do we, do we really think we know what we mean with that or that it's not going to be possible to get confused? Um, or that like God is eternal or God is perfect or all of these things that we say about God. And I'm being very clear, but do we, under, do we, 
really think that that is not without its own risks? Mm. Or mm. do we think that if I have all of the information about something, that means that I comprehend it? Do we think that that means that I have learned it or that I know it if I have all of the facts about it? Uh, and Marty, that just points back to what you were saying. No, of course not. We have to experience something. Uh, it's not just about information. Uh, you can know it all and not really know it. Like Thoreau, I remember reading him in college and him talking about like uh, people sit around all day reading books about tying knots and sails and masts. And what really they need to do is just go get out on a boat and start sailing. And I'm like, yeah, that that is actually a better way to learn. Uh, but then maybe most importantly, like when we're like when we're thinking about now we need to be direct, we need to be clear. Uh, my question is, is it actually effective does it actually, is it the kind of, and this goes back to the truth and fact thing, like is, even if we have the facts, is that the kind of thing that actually matters most to us? Um, and here I want to say, like sometimes, depending on what we're talking about, like if we're talking about the law, like legal matters, um, or we're talking about engineering, or we're talking about fiscal reports, like what we really need is detail and accuracy and good information. But when it comes to the deeper stuff of like who we are, and who God is, and what our experience is like in the world of being a human trying to live with and under God, uh, that that kind of communication that's just clear and straightforward, that's actually really depersonalizing. And most of all, it is, it is powerless. Like It does not change people. And like this is a lot of times, maybe I'm getting into dangerous territory here, but I want to say this. Um, I am not a not believer in the Trinity, but a lot of the, like pretty much every sermon that I've ever heard taught about the Trinity feels like we're busting open like a mechanics, like manual for an automobile. And we're just like diagramming all of the parts. And I'm like, can barely get my head around what you're saying. And even if I do get it, I don't, it doesn't mean much to me. Like deep down, it does not have the power to change me in the way that if I read, you know, a parable about the prodigal son or the good Samaritan has the power to actually change me. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a, and it's a great example. Uh, I, I kept thinking of like really clear, uh, straightforward communication about how to be married. Well, <laughs> like how to do marriage. Well, right. like, yeah, there, there, you know, you can communicate some very helpful things with some straightforward data points mm -hmm. that will not be where 80, 90% of all the goodness is found or, right. you know, goodness, right? Trinity is a great theological example of, yeah. uh, I feel like we're just talking about two completely, like we're having a conversation and it's about all the right stuff. And yet I feel like I couldn't be further away from the subject matter itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I love spreadsheets, but I could have the biggest spreadsheet in the world of facts and details about my wife. And that's not going to make me a better husband necessarily. Mm. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't want to, I don't want to ask this question, but Brent, do you have a spreadsheet full of facts about your wife? No, I don't. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> when, before we were dating, I did have a short list of like things that she mentioned that like, like, oh, she really likes this one thing from this one place or when go. she, okay. like when she that. does this, she likes to do ah. whatever. Like I had, she actually found it the other day when we were looking for something else and she's like, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay. So why, uh, why then talk in parables? 
Um, and we've already kind of gotten at this, but it's, it's really about, I think, what has the power to get through and actually move or change somebody. Um, and here's, here's what I think. If you, if you think about the, the situations in which a lot of the parables are being told, some of them are being told to, uh, large crowds just as a way of kind of, uh, teaching not that, I mean, like in a setting that would be kind of like the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where it's just, a, there's a crowd gathered and Jesus is speaking in a parable. But much of the time, when a parable comes up, it's told in response to an individual who is bringing a certain question or a certain issue uh, to Jesus. And if you look at the parable that gets told in response, it is often getting at or maybe always getting at uh, there is a blind spot that this person has about themselves uh, that they, that Jesus sees they're betraying something about themselves. When they ask the question, they think they're talking about one thing, but then Jesus, and and a lot of times it's like, because they're seeking to somehow justify themselves. uh, This is, I mean, these, all of these situations they are very much about the way that people relate to one another against one another. And Jesus sees what's underneath that, and he tells a parable uh, to address the blind spot that they have. Um, Mm -hmm. So you think about like when Peter comes to Jesus in Matthew, uh, Matthew 18, and he says, that's 18. Did I write that down wrong? Maybe it's 18. I no, feel like it's 18. It's, okay. I, for some reason, I think it should be earlier than that. Anyway, and Peter says, Lord, how many times has my brother sinned against me? And I, and I, and I forgive him. Um, and then Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant, Peter, like what it shows is that Peter is not just asking advice about forgiveness. There is something in Peter that like there is a blind spot he doesn't see that he himself is kind of an unmerciful person in even asking the question. And Jesus tells the unforgiving servant parable in order to address that. Now, Jesus could say directly like, oh, Peter, you're being unforgiving. But what is that going to do? Is that going to get through to Peter? Is that going to change Peter right. being kind right. of um, self-justifying and proud? No, that's not going to do any of that. So he tells the parable. Or you think about like uh, in Matthew 20, the disciples, um, there's there's like some apocalyptic talk going on about the end of the age. And uh, Jesus is talking about people receiving um, what God is going to give to them. And uh, Peter again speaks up and he's like, well, what about us, your disciples? We who left everything. Um, what's going to come for us? Like thinking, and he doesn't, maybe there's a blind spot he doesn't see that like he thinks just because he has done more work, he deserves more. And so Jesus, in response, tells the parable of the workers in the vineyard and like the guy who shows up at the last hour gets paid the same as at the first uh, in order to put that before Peter and challenge him. Um, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch that I've listed here. I'm not going to actually go through them all. Um, A big one that stands up to me that stands out to me uh, is in Luke 12. There are the two brothers who are fighting over the inheritance uh, and the guy's like, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Um, and Jesus, uh, he tells the parable of the rich fool, uh, in order to communicate, like he could say, oh, you guys are like prioritizing the wrong things, but that's just kind of a lame, like powerless thing to say. And it's accusatory. And instead he tells the parable of the guy who just wanted to build bigger and bigger barns as a way of trying to get these guys to think, okay, so what would you do if you had the inheritance? Like, how is that going to work out for you? Reed, when you, when you're saying all this, like, I feel, I feel like the parable 
just takes a situation and loads it with potential, good or bad, mm. but Jesus lays down, because in a lot of these situations, I think about my pastoral response, and I, and I think about the people that I, met, that I mentor, like my disciple comes to me and plays the Peter role, and I feel like the wrestling match I have as a Western thinker is I go, oh, well, do I play the grace card or the or the or the rebuke card? Do I like I'm trying to figure out which card to play. What Jesus does with a parable is it plays a whole hand of cards mm-hmm. that then the person the person because what it does is it does a ton of, for the narcissistic Pharisee or whatever, that person's now gonna be able to save face and still say yes to God. Mm. The space to consider rather than just be defensive. And and this isn't just Jesus. Like, I've heard people talk about when Nathan confronts David with his sin. Mm-hmm. What does Nathan do? He tells a story mm-hmm. about a man and a sheep. Because mm-hmm. what it does is it, it, it makes David far less defensive. It pushes him off the center. And now he's able to interact with an idea that direct communication would have never invited. Like, I feel like what you're saying is that in so many of these cases, Jesus tells a story because now the story is going to open up a whole realm of possibilities. It's not just about A or B. It's about A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all these other things that could happen with the listeners, the confronted, the question asker, the like everybody gets to get in on the work and who knows what they're going to do with it. But Jesus kind of like turns the truth over to them to let them decide what they're going to do with it. I think you're absolutely well, right. Uh, Go ahead, Brent. So I, I think I, I think I'm considering these terms concrete and abstract backwards from what you're saying, because I think of this situation, like the Luke 12 story, where these two guys come to Jesus with a very concrete to them problem. And Jesus turns around and gives this abstract story where these two guys can see themselves in the story as well as anyone else who's listening. Previously, the people who were standing around are like, oh, look at these clowns fighting over their their money. What a bunch of jokers. That's their problem. But then Jesus tells the story, and not only do the two brothers get to see themselves in the story, but then the rest of the people listening are like, oh, I actually have a problem too. Yeah, I mean... And so it... He pulls it out to this abstract idea in which everyone can see their own concrete reality within it. Um, Close. Uh, So, yes, they do have a concrete problem. Their problem is what to do with the inheritance. Uh, There is a another problem that is an abstract one. That is, they are going to. So when this is giving my hand a little bit away for when we do this parable later. But uh, when Jesus says, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you, the word is literally a divider. And it's a play on words because Mm. he's saying, don't ask me to divide the two of you. Like there's a relational rift going on. And if I were to use my authority to tell him to give you the inheritance, I can solve that concrete problem. But that abstract problem of uh, your division, your relational strife, that's not something concrete. I can't like you can't put your hands on it. It doesn't have a shape. Sure. Right. So there is this material or there's this uh, immaterial abstract problem. But then when Jesus tells the parable that is concretizing 
that's taking that strife, that division, and all of the problems that are related to that, and he's putting it into concrete terms, concrete terms about barns and about uh, storing up, you know, grain in barns. Uh, and that, that, so those are all concrete elements. That's the way parables work. They're all concrete things. He's just transferring something that is not concrete onto a concrete thing. That's exactly the point about the way that parables work. Whereas we Hmm. would expect some, you know, like diatribe about, oh, you're being so greedy and, you know, you're going to wreck your relationship and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and those are more abstract terms. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that's helpful. Um, so here's the big idea, uh, Marty. I'm really glad you said the Nathan and David thing. Um, that is a great story. It is a perfect example of using a parable. Um, because here's here's what's true: the things about ourselves that are hardest to hear are things that we cannot hear directly. What David needs to hear about himself, if Nathan comes to him and just says. You know, if he just opens with uh, his accusation to David about the whole uh, Bathsheba and um, Uriah thing. Was that Uriah? No, what was, the, what was the guy's name? Yeah, Uriah the Hittite. Yep. If if he just opens with that, what's gonna what's David going to do? Yeah, it's probably going to be defensive. Yeah, probably, probably, probably going to be defensive. Lie or whatever, deflect like a million things other than truly consider what he needs to. Exactly. And the thing about so many parables is they're, they actually are so confrontational. But Jesus is putting it in a way that is actually like, it It seems harsh, but it's also merciful. Because like you said, it allows them to save some face and to really go and do some thinking if they choose to do that. And the thing about them that is hard to hear, like Peter, you're being unforgiving. Suddenly Peter has a chance to kind of see that for himself. And now it has the power to change. Um, and in, in the same way, there's another half to this coin, another side to the coin. So... Things that are hardest to hear about ourselves, we can't hear directly. And I think also the things about God that are most crucial for us to understand are things that we cannot understand directly. Meaning like that can understand in in the sense that like they can really take a seat in the soul of our being, in uh, the heart of who we are. That doesn't happen when we just talk directly. So if I just say like God is merciful— Okay. Like, yeah. And it's not that we shouldn't say that. I got no problem with that. Um, it's, it's fine to point that out, but that is not, that does not do anywhere close to what happens if I tell you the story of the prodigal son and I tell you the story about the father running out to meet his son to embrace him after his son has like crapped all over him and run away and wasted everything. Right. Like those things about God that we most need to understand, we have to come at it sideways. We have to come at it slant so that it can really resonate deep down uh, with who we are. Yeah. And I, uh, my brain is still spinning. I, I think it's worth a comment based on what we were just talking earlier. None of this stuff abdicates like all the work that somebody has to do after they've encountered the parable. Like it's not all self-contained in the because when we said like, well, it allows it allows the person to save face, and I know a million people are going to hear that in the context of, so you're saying it allows the abuser the opportunity to save face and not, no, 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 you, there are still consequences. They still have to go through the steps of reconciliation and repentance. But what the parable does is it opens up a window that I think maybe for, many, for some of our listeners, we ought to hold cancel culture up against what we're seeing here in parables. Like there's something that cancel culture 
is not accomplishing in a redemptive way that parable is able to get into. So lack of accountability ain't it, but cancel culture rejection isn't it either. And the parable invites all of us into this greater truth that we could actually build a better world out of. And that's going to require reconciliation and reparations and confession and true repentance and a change of behavior. But the parable is actually able to provoke that when pure accountability systems on their own cannot. Those can't change the heart. Um, But the parable gets at the stuff that can, like the the spirit and the soul stuff that goes to work inside of us. Yeah, I think you're so right. I think there's something really just kind of inherently shaming about the very direct like, let me tell you how wrong you are, or let me, and there is, that doesn't exist in the parable way, uh, where I'm mm-hmm. going to, I'm going to give you a story where you can see yourself in that, um, that can, that can hopefully move you, uh, without just pointing a finger and telling you how bad you are. Capen, Robert Farrar Capen, uh, who just wrote one of the best gosh dang books on the parables that there is. Uh, it was actually three small books that got combined into a single volume called, uh, kingdom judgment, grace, no kingdom, grace, judgment, grace. I always say it wrong. Um, he, he talks about this idea of right and left-handed power, um, which other people have also talked about. And I've gleaned, uh, from several different teachers on this. Um, but he, he talks about like, if, if, if we think of power as, uh, you know, something that has the, the ability to influence or change something or someone, how's that for an abstract sentence for you? Um, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a good Western definition. Uh, there are, there are two kinds. There's, there's power that kind of works the way that a hammer works on a nail, which is you just drive it straight and with force and it doesn't really have, uh, the nail doesn't really have an option, but to be driven, um, a lot of our like ways of doing, well, pretty much everything in the world are right-handed. Um, a lot of parenting is this way where it's like, you're going to have a consequence if you do a bad thing. That's like a right-handed way of, uh, dealing with a problem. A reward is also a right-handed way of dealing with a problem. Um, and the great thing about right-handed power is it gets results. It will actually change action. Like it can, it can bend something to your will, but it doesn't, it it doesn't have the power to actually change like a, a person deep down. And then he talks about, um, left-handed power, uh, which, uh, works the way that, uh, like aroma works. So like the way that, um, if, if Leanne is baking bread, uh, in, in the oven, we, nobody has to force anybody to come to the table to eat, right? Like there are, Mm, there are, there are times where I got to force my kids to eat. And if you don't eat, then you're not getting dessert, right? That's right-handed. Um, or if you don't eat, you're like not going to get big and strong. That's, that's right-handed. The left-handed approach is like, there is something about the internal nature of the thing that it's like, it compels you rather than forces you, right? And, and this is like parables are kind of the left-handed power uh, version of speech um, where I'm not just like telling you and you either take it or leave it, but I am inviting you to like look inside and there is something in it that's going to resonate um, with you and have the power to change. Eugene Peterson, um, he says this, he says, a parable keeps the message at a distance 
which feels counterintuitive to us, right? Like, don't keep the message at a distance. Put it in their face. Like, don't risk them walking away and not seeing what you want to say, or don't risk them not getting it, especially when you're talking about the gospel. But the parable keeps the message at a distance, and it slows down comprehension. We're not trying to get it done as fast as possible. We want to slow it down. And it blocks automatic prejudicial reactions, he says, and dismantles stereotypes. A parable comes up on the listener obliquely on the slant, he says. And he's then talking about the Samaritan. He says, the Samaritan listens, unsuspecting, and then without warning, without the word even being used, God. It's a way of talking about God without having to throw that word in somebody's face. Um. And then he, he quotes John Dominic Croson. He says, uh, John Dominic Croson says that the parable is an earthquake opening up the ground at your feet, to which I would add, if you choose to make yourself stand there, right? Like if you're going to engage. But the parable, the way that Jesus operates, it leaves the power in the hands of the hearer. And it's open to rejection. It's open to misunderstanding. Uh, Jesus is not concerned with making sure there's no room for that. And the reason is, as, as we've said probably a couple of times already, this is the only way. This is the only way that real change will come about in a person, uh, in the abuser, in the self-righteous Pharisee, in the whatever. Like they have to, uh, it has to come on the slant. There has to be engagement. There has to be wonder. There has to be a certain identification and and ultimately discovery. Like you've talked about that before, Marty, that the power of discovery is the power to really teach you something and get it down into you, Um, which is why, you know, the whole Remez way of teaching, it's you do the work. You, you understand how this connects to something else. You discover it and boom, now I have an epiphany. I've got a revelation, like something really changes. Right. Okay. We're coming to the end. Um, and I don't even think it's been three hours yet. So I'm, I'm on, I'm on a good track today. Um, I, I wanted to note before I get to this last short section on like how to read and hear the parables. Um, I want to note, uh, something I've noted, uh, before, at, when I preach this at CCF, and that is uh, recognize that there is a certain irony in teaching about parables. Like, <laughs> I did think about that during our conversation today. I'm like, this yeah. is a weird way. Like, to taking do this. something that Jesus is perfectly content to just let sit there and then be like, now let me, now let me pick this up for you and I'm going to explain some things to you. <laughs> um, I think it's necessary because we are thousands of years and a half a world and many other factors removed from the original telling of these parables. And we need help to uh, be able to hear them the way that Jesus' original audience would have heard them. But uh, I want to note the irony, and I want to read two parables that I actually wrote about about the difficulty of teaching and explaining parables uh, just to make sure that we're all on the same page with the p- the potential pitfalls of a of an anthology like this, um, but also where the benefits might lie. Okay, here's the first one. Teaching a parable on a podcast is like a comedian who booked a regular, well-paying gig. Well, I shouldn't say well-paying here. A regular, well-paying gig. <laughs> Every Sunday night, he stepped on stage, took the mic, and commenced his act, which consisted entirely of explaining someone else's jokes. The crowds left the club every week in contented silence, understanding why the jokes were funny, but unable to laugh at them. (laughs) 
That's pretty good read. And again, teaching a parable may be compared to a man who loved a swallow that had made its nest in his backyard. The bird watcher would sit for hours, raptly admiring the swallow's gliding, unpredictable flight pattern. He told his friends, I have the most amazing thing to show you, and invited them over one Sunday. Once they arrived, he gently caught the swallow, and they watched as he began to open it up with a scalpel. They took careful notes as he pointed out how its skeletal and muscular systems worked together to create such a beautiful motion. When the man was done, the swallow twitched as he tossed it in the grave prepared beforehand, and each guest tossed on a shovelful of dirt as they returned to their homes. Oh, man. It's not where where I saw that going when he started. Yeah, baby. So I want to point that out to say there is, for I think we're going to be talking about uh, a number of parables, and we're going to be doing uh, some dissecting, if you will. Um, but my encouragement to listeners is don't just let what I say or what we say be enough for you. Uh, there is a whole world inside of these parables that is there for each person to enter into. And we can say things that might help you enter into it, but don't look at it because really, if that's what you do, then it, it really is just like me explaining somebody else's jokes. And you're like, oh, that was funny. But you're not really laughing deep down. You're not being moved by it. You're not being changed by it. And the thing just ends up laying dead in the end. So take what we say. And what I what I did when we were doing parables um, at CCF, the, the most fruitful part of the whole thing was not when I was preaching, but then we would sit around and discuss afterwards. And Everybody who would who would be there, and we'd have groups sometimes of 20 people sitting around talking about parables, and everybody's bringing these different angles, and it's like, oh, yeah, and then that opens up this, and that opens up that, and you kind of can explore the metaphor that Jesus is giving you to its limits. Uh, now, that being said, of course, there's the danger. Like, you can overextend the metaphor, and you can get into territory that's probably just not a very appropriate interpretation. There's always that danger there. Um, but people, take it. And, and and dig into the parables for yourselves with your friends. This is like so important, by the way. I'm I'm gonna jump in and stop you because I like these will these these messages will come in emails, you know, whatever social media on Slack, and people will have this question, is this the remez to mm. blank parable? And I always and I have taught I, I have unfortunately my language betrays that sometimes. Like I'm always like, this is the remer- this is the remez to this parable. It's obvious, blah, 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 blah. But I whenever that question comes in, I always find myself going, No, that you we cannot, this is not an objective science, to which makes us freak out. Like, wait, if it's not an objective thing, because the process <laughs> is more dynamic than that. If it's just like, yes, this is the remez, it's like dissecting the swallow. It's like yeah. you're supposed to be in the and who knows? And and I think. Should I say this out loud right now? I think I can't. I think I should. I think the process of Pardes is more spirit-filled, more spirit-led, more hmm. dynamic. Like, I trust what the Spirit of God's going to do in you as you dig into the parable. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's about finding the right remez. I, I would also yeah. affirm you, you saying there's like an overextension to that and a poor hermeneutic, and we could definitely, you know, butcher a, an interpretation, but... The process itself, like it, you know, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, like there is something very dynamic and spiritual hmm. about engaging, particularly these kinds of teachings and trusting the process 
that God's at work in this story. If it is like a house with all these windows that you're being invited to come and live in, it would be really weird if you moved in. Somebody said, well, here's the kitchen. That's all you need to see. Time to go. <laughs> yeah. It would be like, well, let me stay here for a while and appreciate some of the other rooms and like actually experience the kitchen. Like, you know, I, I don't know if that makes any sense. But no. I, yeah. That engagement is so key. If we just st- if we just stand outside and statically say, I've got it. We missed all the power. There's no power in that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you, so in, in our in our house uh, metaphor here remember that we're actually living in this house with other people. And so if I can look out the window and be like, oh, there's the remez to this passage. And so this is about, um, you know, forgiveness. And I'm like, oh, cool. Look at that connection. Isn't that neat? And then I go living in the house as an unforgiving person. I'm not really identifying. I'm not really, it's not, it's not just about like, oh, cool. Look, it's like a, we can sometimes do like a little bit of a, like a Bible where's Waldo thing when it comes to Remez, where it's like, oh, look, (laughs) I found the connection. Isn't that cool? And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's cool. And not to like betray the whole Bema project or anything, but like, just because we've identified a Remez or a chiasm, like if that's just there to blow your mind, but it doesn't actually get down into the way that you're living in the house with the other people, then I don't care. It doesn't mean anything. Ooh, man. Okay. Two things. Number one, fire emoji. Yeah, <laughs> Number two, I don't know why there's people in your house. Cause in my dream, terrible house, it's just me <laughs> all to myself. I have booked it. Spiritual Airbnb.com. All for me. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I think the way we've talked about it before is like the last level of Pardes is the spirit part. Mm. But everything that comes before that is the mechanical, just jump through the hoops. And it's that simple. But if we don't allow the spirit into the rest of the process, if the spirit only comes in at the very end when there's nothing else that we can do, then we're, we're missing out on it. Because even if we do like, sometimes the remez is very clear. Like there's a very specific word that's used and it's only used in this one. It's like, what else could they possibly be referencing? And maybe there are some other possibilities, but sometimes it's just very clear, but then that's it. Mm-hmm. So you have to let the spirit into the rest of the process or, or there's no real power in it. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's, that's a good word. Um, okay. Last last little section, and this is quick. This is just Reed's tips for how to read slash hear the parables. Um, the first one is engage, which by that I just mean, like, you should. Find the connections. Like Remez City, just get into it. Dig into the text. Uh, figure out where it connects to other things. And also examine all of the cultural facets you can, because there are many. And that's some of the work that we're going to be doing here um, the little details that mean a lot to a first century audience that don't mean as much to me, uh, examine all of those things to try to hear it uh, as close to that original audience as you can. Um, the second one is, I, I guess, just wonder, as in like, stretch your legs, uh, get around and and wander around inside the parables, like feel free to uh, notice things that are in the background, um, notice like if there's if there's a like what i mean is this like uh if you're if we're talking about the kingdom of god as yeast that works itself through dough like what ask like feel free to ask the question okay so what happens to your hands when you're working dough and does that add anything to the meaning of this parable or like uh the 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 good samaritan 
that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, like how wide is that road? Are you picturing it? Like how wide? What's the terrain? Does that affect the way anything about this story or like the prodigal son when he's returning from the far off country? How long do you think it takes him to get home? And what how much time does he have and what's going through his head on the way back? Like none of those are details that are given, but the nature of a parable is such that you can get inside uh, and you can you can wander around and that can actually affect the way that you make meaning, not just our given meaning, but the way that you make it. Uh, and to that end, I want to read a little poem uh, by Billy Collins. I, I don't have I read this on the podcast before. It's called Introduction to Poetry. I have a bad I memory. So. I don't think so. Okay. I read this with students all the time. It's very relevant to just the way we read the Bible in general, uh, but hear about parables. Uh, this is Introduction to Poetry by Billy Collins. I asked them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. <laughs> if that doesn't describe our Bible study, I don't know what does. Yeah, so, 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 so keep that in mind as you wander around in the parables. The third thing is uh, identify. Like a good exercise is take turns being all the characters in a parable. So I think about uh, the parable of the guests being invited to the banquet. How do you hear that if you're the invited guest? And how do you hear it differently? What else? What, what pops out if you're one of the poor in the city? Or if you're somebody who's lurking on the highway, how does it strike you? Or if even if you are the messenger, him or herself, what comes out? Uh, and just see what happens. Uh, and then the final thing, well, this isn't really something you can do, but uh, I'm hoping through engaging and wondering and identifying, um, hopefully then something like discovery, I hope and pray is going to happen. Uh, and God can can use these to get down, worm his way down into us uh, and and change something in the soul. Uh, that's what I'm hoping for. Well, in light of the good. idea of yeah. being able to dig in and do this work we should probably tell people what parable is coming next week uh is it is it the the prodigal son no it's the good samaritan the good samaritan i don't remember the the schedule gets all <laughs> oh yeah good samaritan <laughs> ellen and i are going to be doing that together Ooh, yes. that's that's going to be i'm i'm can i just i'm a little intimidated because Elle just she's like so smart and knows all the things and i just like don't know that stuff and i'm like oh gosh uh, I would be nervous to be a student of L's. Like if, if she was my professor, I would be, I would be nervous. Um, but you know, <laughs> hopefully it'll be well, good. Well, Marty knows is, is that nervousness founded Marty? Yeah. 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 yeah absolutely. <laughs> no, yeah. you're supposed to make me feel more at ease. Oh, uh, and then I do. It's good though. Mar it's, Marty and it's I. It's good uncomfortable. Marty and I, Mar Brent, the three of us, we're going to be getting into the, uh, the prodigal son as well at some point. And uh, I'm excited for that. Um, we had a conversation about it, uh, a kind of an extended conversation that continued over like a day or two in Israel, uh, where we we saw some aspect of it a little bit differently. It was fun to kind of jab back and forth about it um, with the people kind of standing around listening in. 
Uh, so I'm looking forward to that one. We got a few others. Who knows? Maybe we'll just maybe just continue this anthology into infinity. Well, we can't do that because there's a limited number of parables. But yeah, I'm I'm excited to dig in. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah. you had a reading list at the end of your notes here. We talked about most of them. Kingdom Grace Judgment by Robert Farrar Capon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tell It Slant. You talked about a couple times. You quoted by Eugene Peterson. Um, we've talked a lot about Poet and Peasant and Through Peasant's Eyes. It's a combined volume by Kenneth Bailey. Mm-hmm. And they're just a great book of parables. Not that they function on a Pardes level, but one of my favorite resources, I think we've even recommended it more than, well, at least once as the Orthodox Heretic by oh. Peter Rollins. Yeah. That's a pretty good list. Yeah. The Orthodox Heretic, I mean, that's less like coming to bear directly on the text uh, itself that we're going to be reading, but more like here are just some modern parables that he has come up with that uh, work in these kind of sneaky, subversive, uh, slant ways. Uh, and they're a little bit more directly accessible to us because they're, you know, from the here and now. Um, and man, some of them are very awesome. So yeah, I recommend all of those uh, to anybody who wants to pick them up. Don't believe we've actually recommended uh, The Orthodox Heretic on the podcast before. Probably not. It's one of those authors I always get emails about whenever we recommend anything. So I probably decided like, no, don't mention <laughs> Peter Rollins. I've already mentioned Brian McLaren today, so I'm already going to get the email. So now they can just put the two words together, put the two names, send one email <laughs> telling me what a horrible person I am and it'll... Be great. And definitely send that to Marty <laughs> and not me. Oh, Reed. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see how those emails get filtered. We'll just see where they end up going. Okay. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. Uh, Reed will be hanging around on the Baymoss Slack, I'm sure, after this episode posts. And uh, that's pretty much it. You can find uh, anything else you need at BaymontSlapShop.com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.